You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. your Bibles, go to Proverbs chapter 7. Uh, we'll be there for a, a moment, and then I'll uh, we'll, uh, be in a couple of other places. But Proverbs chapter 7 is where we'll uh, be. We've been uh, in the Proverbs uh, for the last couple of weeks. I'll begin this way. It's a quote from Leo Tolstoy. At the end of his life, he wrote this. He said, I, I am always with myself, and it is I uh, it is I who am my tormentor. I'm always with myself, and it is I who am my tormentor. And this was at the end of a, of a life that was, uh, in a lot of ways, very, very tragic, very conflicted, um, full of a lot of, of angst. He um, was a Russian novelist, Tolstoy was, wrote War and Peace. It's the, uh, it's the book that uh, many of us probably have in our bookshelf and have never read. Uh, big, huge book. Anna Karenina, he wrote that. Wrote a lot of short stories as well. He was born in 1928 um, outside of Moscow. He, um, at the age of 17, uh, his mom died, his grandparents died, left him a fortune, really, and he went uh, to go study at the academy. He went to go uh, study foreign languages, oriental languages, actually. He was brilliant, uh, but he did not end up finishing school because he, uh, he got caught up in going to brothels. He, he picked up a gambling habit, and within a few years, he, um, he really was making a mess of his life. And so he decided that the remedy for this is that he needed some discipline, and he was going to uh, enlist in the army. And so he, he felt like the military was going to be the answer to his problems. So he does. He enlists in the military, but that does not, uh, that doesn't fix anything for him. Um, in, in part of his inheritance, he inherited um, some forests, which is what you would inherit back in those days, uh, some houses, um, a beautiful watch uh, from his grandfather. He, he ended up gambling all of those things away and found himself absolutely destitute. So in uh, 1855, he was tormented by what he says were fits of lust and reckless spending. And so he turned himself uh, with careful attention to the teachings of Christ. And so he begins, he, he turns his life, so the way one biographer says, from the excesses of one way of life to the excesses of another. And he moved to what would be called ascetic denial. He moved to the absolute denial of all material things in the world. He, his goal was to become nothing short of perfect like Jesus was. That was his goal. And so to do that, what he did was he began to keep this detailed journal of his moral progress. All right? 
And so you, um, what he would do is he would write down the night before, he would say, these are the things I'm going to do. And then he would uh, then do those things. And then on the next night, he would, he would give an account of how he did. And then, and then, so just listen to how Tolstoy's journal went, okay? So this is the 24th of March of that year in his pursuit of moral excellence through discipline. Arose somewhat late, but did not have time to write. Poirot came, I fenced, and did not send him away. And then in parentheses he writes, sloth and cowardice. Ivanovan came, I spoke with him too long, cowardice. Sergi came to drink vodka, and I did not escort him out, cowardice. Azarov argued about nothing, habit of arguing. I did not talk about what I should have talked about. Cowardice. Did not go to Blekvivmish, uh, weakness of energy. During gymnastics, did not walk the rope. Cowardice. And did not do one thing because it hurt. Sissiness. Went to Gorgachev's. Uh, at Gorgachev's, I lied. Lying. Went to uh, Novotrov's tavern. Lack of fortitude. At home, did not study English. Insufficient firmness. At Volkanev's, uh, <laughs> me some new friends, was unnatural and distracted and stayed until one in the morning. And then he has a litany. Distractedness, desire to show off, and weakness of character. This is my plan for the next day, the 25th. From 10 to 1, yesterday's diary, and to read. From 11 to 12, gymnastics. From 12 to 1, English. Becklefish and Bayer from 1 to 2, from 2 to 4 on horseback, from 4 to 6 dinner, from 6 to 8 read, from 8 to 10 to write, to translate something in a foreign language into German, to, de to develop memory and style, to write today with all the impressions and thoughts to give rise to. The next day, here it goes. Awoke late out of sloth. Wrote my diary and did gymnastics, hurrying. Did not study English out of sloth. With uh, Begachev and Islav was vain. At Beklachev's was cowardly and lack of fortitude. Uh, on the boulevard wanted to show off. I did not walk on foot. Sissiness. Rode with a desire to show off for the same reason to Osarov's. Did not return uh, to Kalmazani. Uh, uh, thoughtlessness. At Gorgachev's dissembled and did not call things by their names. Fooling myself. Went to uh, Lasanov's out of insufficient energy and the habit of doing nothing. Sat around at home out of absent-mindedness and read Werther inattentively, hurrying. And then it goes on and on and on and on. The historian Paul Johnson writes, he said, There were times when Tolstoy, even though he's keeping this journal on the one hand of his moral progress on the other hand he thought of himself as making tremendous progress to the degree that he thought of himself as God's brother indeed he could have been his elder brother in fact Tolstoy once wrote he said this he said I read a work on literary char characterization uh, I read a work on the literary literary characterization of genius today and this awoke in me the conviction that I am a remarkable man, both as regards to capacity and eagerness to work. 
says, I've not yet met a single man who was morally as good as I am. And I do not remember an instance in my life when I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything to it. Johnson goes on. He says, it's only a facade. I mean, his life was a mess. A total contradiction. I mean, so he would speak on the one hand about uh, publicly, he would speak about love and, and sacrifice and chastity like Jesus. And on the other hand, he was writing thinly failed fiction that clearly uh, demonstrated a hatred towards women, his, his uh, uh, conflicts with, with lust and sex so much that characters were murdering their wives all the while. Tolstoy's wrestling, he says, with angels and demons. and He faced great depressions and he never lived up to his ideals all the while. Tolstoyism is rippling throughout the world. Even to the South Africa where it's having this great effect on a young Gandhi. Tolstoy was struggling with lust and um, all of the material that he's writing. He continued to write about God, to write about art, to write about Russian imperialism, to write about materialism and Christ, but he never reached the perfection he'd sure, he was sure was in his grasp. Though much of his work was censored, all the while he philosophized, he wrote, his wife Sonia was going mad. She had attempted suicide. She was struggling to hold on to property and money. He kept trying to give it away because he felt guilty. He was, he was giving it away. Their family was uh, suffering poverty. He would sign all of his copyrights away. It was in the middle of the Russian famine. Here he is all the while. All these desires, all these impulses... And he's trying to restrain them, to restrain the impulses with all of his might. He's trying to control his heart with all that he can. That's what Tolstoy was after. Moral reform. He was trying to jury-rig his heart. But it wasn't really change. He says what we do. We have these desires, we have these impulses, we know this, and we, we know they betray us, we know we don't want them, and, and we do all that we can to repress them, to push them away, to have discipline. For example, we want self-control. We're filled, filled with fear about it, and so we use fear to get self-control. We say, well, listen, I better change or people are going to find out. That's one way to do it. We use pride to get self-control. See, out of self-interest, out of pride, out of fear, we're sure that we can will ourselves to make these changes. And listen, to some degree, there's... Maybe a place for that. The world will be a terrible place if, if people weren't pursuing that. But it's not the same thing as changing the heart. 
See, when the Bible talks about spiritual transformation, it's not the same as a moral reform. It's not restraining the heart with with rules and regulations. Self-discipline and inner strength. Spiritual transformation, as the Bible talks about it, is something that supernaturally happens, that it comes from looking at Christ. It comes from being having a heart melted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it comes from spiritual understanding of the work of Christ and His person. Our union with Him. See, we've been looking at Proverbs. We've been looking at the wisdom literature. In fact, this summer we said we're going to take a journey. We're going to pursue wisdom together this summer. And the last couple of weeks we've been in the Proverbs. The first week we looked at the wisdom of words, the things we say, the things we don't say, the things we hear and don't hear and what we're influenced by and how we influence. And and last week we looked at the sluggard in our life and the dangers of, of going to sleep in our lives in different areas. And this week I want to talk about what the wisdom literature has to say about self control. A biblical picture of self-control. Not not just not just self-discipline. Not just what you can accomplish in your own strength, but I, but I'm talking about spiritual self-control. How the heart is changed. How does the wisdom literature help us to see that? And so, two things. What's a biblical picture of self-control, and how do we cultivate it in our lives? The first place I want us to see is here in Proverbs 7. And it gives us really a need for why we got to look at self-control. And in Proverbs chapter 7, you have the, um, the, the sage here. He's a father instructing his son. And there's several chapters here where the father's instructing the son. And here in 7, at the beginning of chapter 7, and the title in my Bible here in the ESV, it's, it's the warning against the, the adulteress. And the father's instructing the son because, hey, listen, son, it, there, there's a lot of men that, that grow up and get, and get trapped in her way. And, and you've got to be on the lookout. You, you've, you've got to be on the, on the aware because, um, because this, is, this is an offense. It, the, 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 the adulteress plays offense. You've got to be aware of this. And so beginning in verse 21, I'll pick up here. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, O sons, listen to me, and 
Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she's laid low. and All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. And it picks up in chapter 8 where we began last week. And says, but there's the call of wisdom. Listen for wisdom's call. Be sobered by wisdom's call. Be alert to wisdom's call. Listen. Tune your ears to wisdom. Temptations everywhere. You have to be alert. You need self-control. You can get easily distracted. You have to be ready. Well, the sage will say later on in, in Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight, he'll say this about self-control. Say a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control or a woman without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Literally, a man without self-control over his spirit or her spirit, maybe your translation says. It's like a city broken into and left without its walls. But being left without walls is this very vivid image. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah hears that the people in Jerusalem, um, people there, they survived the exile. They, they didn't get carried off, but they're there. But he hears that they're there, and the, and the walls, they've been besieged. The, the walls are, are down. There's no walls around Jerusalem, and yet there are people there, and they're defenseless. And Nehemiah, upon hearing this, sits down where he is, and he weeps and mourns and fasts and prays for days. He can't think about his kinsmen there in Jerusalem, in the city without any walls, completely defenseless. And it, and it, and it overwhelms him thinking about the consequences of that. You see, the walls around the city are what kept life secure. It's what kept chaos out. If there weren't any walls, there was no security, chaos reigns. Your life, your your cares, the, the things that matter, the 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 um, uh, the, the, the ebbs, the, the, the flows, none of that can be in order. It's it's survival mode. It's the best you can hope for. See, a city with walls, there's, there's economy, there's commerce, there's, there's things to buy, to sell, there's employment. You can go to the market, you can pick up something to eat, you can provide for your family. If there aren't any walls, none of that's in place. It's like on the coast when a hurricane comes and, you know, everybody, everybody rushes in, you know, to the... To the uh, to, you know, to the, to the Walmart, and there's, there's no water left. There's not, you know, it's, it's chaos. It's, it, it's survival mode. Everybody's scrambling. 
in a city with walls, there's justice and there's courts and there's due process and there's a legal system. And and when there's no walls, there's nobody to appeal to. There's nobody to take your case to. There's revenge and there's feuds and everybody lives in, in fear. Tim Keller makes this application and dependent on him in, in this preparation. He, he, uh, he does such a great job talking about self-control and, and he makes this application. Um, this is one of many he makes. He says, so see, and this is the application he makes, without a wall, civilization fell apart and everybody was scrambling for survival. And he says, so with that being said, here's this application. A glass of wine's a wonderful thing, but it becomes the main but if it becomes the main way you deal with life, the desire for it's become disproportional. It's gotten out of control, it squeezes out the other things, the important things of life, and your life falls apart. So if anything, if any passion, any desire, anything that, any, any desire for, for anything that gets out of control, that gets disproportionate, it can, it can squeeze out the other things in your life, your life begins to fall apart. You're a man or you're a woman without self-control, without walls around your city, without walls around your soul, you're defenseless to the chaos that inevitably comes into your life. So what's a definite definition of self-control? Here, here's, here's one for you. The definition of self-control is the ability to recognize and to choose the important things over the urgent things. At any moment, because within yourself, your desires are ordered properly. That the most important things are the things that are desired the most, and the less important things are desired the least. It's the ability to recognize and to choose the important things over the urgent things because everything's ordered properly. Because the walls are in There's self-control. Now, there is a counterfeit to self-control that the sage will address in the Proverbs. He does so in chapter 18 and 10 and 11, and it goes like this. The, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. He's going to set up a contrast for us. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs to it and is safe. The name of the Lord, that's that strong tower, and the righteous man runs to the name of the Lord and is safe. And then here's the contrast in verse 11. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. 
and like a high wall in his imagination. Your, your strength, your discipline, the thing you run to, your, your wall, your, your tower has, has become your strength, your strong city. And the, and the sage says, that high wall is nothing more than an imagination that you've created. The wealthy think their wealth is an unscalable wall. The the one who has strength thinks their strength is an unscalable wall. The one who's put something in the place of God as their tower thinks their tower, their wall is unscalable. And that they'll be safe there. It means that everybody that has a wall, everybody that has a tower, everybody that has a place of security that says, hey, listen, this is my ultimate security. This is something that you look at and you say, listen, if, if, if I have that, if I just have that in my life, if I, just, if I just have a little more of this or a little more of that, then I'm going to be okay. If I could just get this, If I could just get to here or just get to that, everything's going to be all right. I'll be safe. The problem is you're going to an imaginary high tower, an imaginary wall. Something you think will give you security, ultimate security, but it can't. It just can't. The Bible over and over and over. So anything you go to that's not the Lord, that's not the high tower of the Lord, can't bring you that security. Anything you go to besides God, anything besides God that you look to as your ultimate security, creates a pattern in your life that ends up being a snare to you. Anything you run to as a high tower, as your wall, as your ultimate thing, so whether it's your money, or career, or significance, or relationship, or a person, anything you look to as the ultimate security of your life, rather than God, more than God, creates a snare then instead of you seizing it it turns around and seizes you there's a guy named Neil Plantiga and he wrote an article and the article is called The Tragedy of Addiction and he uses the word generally addiction generally it says that snare works like an addiction in our lives. Listen to how he describes it. He says, no matter how they start, addictions operate like this. Addictions begin when we use something that we believe will relieve distress. Then, eventually, the addictions create their own distress. And finally, addictions spiral down when they try to cure the additional pain with the thing that caused it. Well, what moves the addict 
to the bait. Well, at every stage, addiction is driven by one of the most powerful, mysterious, and vital forces of human existence. What drives addiction is longing, longing not just of the brain or the belly or the loins, but finally of the heart. Because we're human beings, we long for wholeness. We long for fulfillment and for the final good that believers call God. Like all idolatries, addiction taps this vital spiritual force and draws off its energies to objects and processes that drain the addict instead of fulfilling them. And at the heart of it is what he calls tolerance effect. You start with a substance or a person or a relationship or or this thing that I have to have. If I just have this, then everything will be okay. And you start with it and it gives you the high or it gives you the relief. Then you go back to it. And the tolerance effect means that that you get used to it. You need it more. And you need more of it next time to get the same level, the same good feeling, the same relief. And the problem is you never get back to the same level. You need more and more of it to get less and less of the good feeling or less and less of the relief. And so down and down and down you spiral. And that's exactly what happens if you put anything in the place of God in your life. If there's anything that's your high tower, anything that's your unscalable wall, it will drive you, it will snare you, it will trap you. You'll need more and more of it. And yet... It'll never give you what it should give you. And your life will spiral down. And so whether it's money or significance or a person, whatever it is, it'll never be enough. You'll be on the constant quest for more. And so you'll either live your life like Tolstoy in this constant repression of trying to trying to master, trying to discipline, trying to hold this, or creating an, a, another wall, another tower that, that you that you try to say, if I just had this, then I then if I could just reach this. Sage says, the wise one, the wise one runs to the Lord. The name of the Lord is his high tower. So how do you do that? How do you run into the name of the Lord? What does that look like? Let me suggest to you a way that self-control works. With With a picture from God's Word. Now, you've 
You can find this all through God's Word. I'll give you one picture. You can find it throughout the writings of church history. Augustine deals with it in his City of God. It is, um, it's, uh, it's significant for us to understand how self-control works. In Genesis 29, we're told of a story. I think it's one of the most fascinating stories in all of Genesis. And it's the story of Jacob. He has fled Esau. And he goes to stay with his uncle Laban. And upon meeting Laban, he runs into one of his two daughters, Rachel. And he sees her, and he cannot believe what he has laid his eyes upon. She's the most beautiful thing he has ever seen. His heart is captured with all her affection. And so what he does is he says to Laban, I have to marry your daughter Rachel. And Laban, you find out later, is kind of a sorry rat, but so is Jacob. They're good for each other. But he says to Jacob, okay, you can marry my daughter, but here's what you got to do. you got to work for me seven years, and at the end of seven years, you can marry her. And Jacob says, great. So in Genesis 29, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love And in that right there, you find the secret of self-control. I mean, at some point, he probably said, listen, I can't believe this. this I mean, two years, three years maybe. It's tedious. It's long work. Laban, you know, it's hard to work for Laban. You know, how do you... How do you stick with all that? How, how, do you, how do you exercise all that self-control in the midst of it? How do you not give up? How do you, how do you endure? But Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. He loved her, and because he loved her, all other desires of his heart were in order. All other desires were mastered. All other desires were prioritized. Thomas Chalmers, an old Scottish theologian, you can't go wrong with a Scottish theologian, all right? He said this. So listen, and then I'll... I'll say, I'll help you with this. He says, we only cease to be a slave of one appetite because another has brought it into subordination. 
a youth might cease to idolize sensual pleasure and partying around, but it's only because the idol of material gain and career success has gotten the ascendancy. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an ultimate object of beauty and joy. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Do you hear what he said? The only way to get rid of this desire, this power, this affection, these things. So we know we have these desires. We all have these desires. It is not by repressing them. It is not by self-discipline. It is not by saying, listen, I'm denying it. I'm going to go away. I'm going to make my list. I'm going to, I am going to will this away. It is not by doing that. He said it is by the expulsive power of a new affection, a greater affection, something more beautiful. That's how you rid the heart of one affection to set it on something greater. That's how you control and change the heart. Just rightly ordering the desires of the heart so they all work together. It's not the matter of the will, but something that unites the soul, so that there's a joy set in front of you, a, a goal, something that lifts you up. It pulls everything together. It unites your heart. It's like the psalmist says, he prays that you, you unite my heart. He prays to God. So let me say this. Do you know why we can run to the Lord? Do you know why we can run to Jesus? as our strong tower. Why, Jesus is the strong tower that can unite our hearts. And only for believers, and let me tell you this, the answer for us comes in so many places. One place, according to Hebrews 12, says this. Because he ran the race, he endured the cross. You know what it says? For the joy that was set before him. Now think about this. This is the eternal Son of God who has everything. What joy did he not already have? He ran the race. He endures the cross for the joy set before him. What joy does the eternal Son of God not already have? What possible thing 
would bring the Son of God out of eternity into history to take on humanity. To take on our sin and our death for joy. The only thing He didn't have was you. That was the joy set before. Here's the other way to say it. We're his Rachel. He loved us so much that he makes light of the cross. Says Jacob loves Rachel so much. Seven years seems like a few days. Jesus loves us so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Loves us so much that the cross. The cross is able to bear to step out of eternity into humanity, take on all flesh, all sin. Because the Hebrew writer says, for the joy set before him. If you see Jesus making you his joy, making you, in a sense, his Rachel, the passion, the passion of Jesus, his life to, to get us, to have us, Get everything else. I mean, he has the Father. He has the glory. He has the crown. He has the authority of the universe. He has the worship of angels. The only thing he didn't have was us. You. You you, and the, yeah, I, we're his joy. And the degree that that sinks down into your heart through adoration and through worship, that sinks down into you. We love him because he first loved us. That reorders our affections. When we get a hold of his love for us, we love him that, that's that's the only thing that has the power to displace the other affections when we realize we are his joy so it's not willpower that'll do it it's gospel power I mean, you, you can endure when it sinks down into you what he endured. Fixing your eyes on him. Contemplating him. That's the source of self-control. Not you. Yeah. So if, if you would, would, would you bow with me?